I found this aspect of being told what to do in pregnancy really jarring. Here's what to do. Here's a list of foods not to eat with no description of like what would happen if you ate those. Like, would your baby have horns? You know, like if I have an oyster, like what could happen? Like I just didn't even like understand, is that the same as eating turkey? And then, you know, I come from a particular angle. I'm an economist. I work with data. That's my love language. It's my area of expertise. And the data is almost never going to be like, this is the only good choice. It's almost always going to be like, there are costs and benefits to different approaches and you need to figure out what works for you. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Big Time Adulting. Today, I have one of my favorite people on Instagram, Emily Oster, renowned economist and big time IG economist. Like your your Instagram. I, I think I might be like the biggest Instagram economist. Yeah, it's fucking great yeah. because you're putting out such awesome material, especially for our demographic of, of moms. Um, I remember when I first was introduced to your work, which was in 2013 when I was pregnant with my oldest and I came across an article written by you because I was probably in a Google rabbit hole and I think it popped up and it was called thinking about pregnancy like an economist. And it was like everything I ever wanted to hear as a pregnant woman. Like it just made me feel so much better about the fears that I had had. Like, and particularly this article was like, there is no hard and fast evidence that any low amount of alcohol will damage you or your baby rather while you're pregnant. And I was like, fuck yes. I can't wait to have my glass of wine this weekend and not feel scared about it or whatever. Cause I think I knew like in my heart, like this is crazy. Yeah. Like I have, and, could- and like for a lot of women, your OB will tell you that, right? Like, Oh, you know, don't have too much. Have one. It's okay. But then it's like, well, why, you know, I want to know the data. Uh, who knew that you could make data fun? Who knew? I didn't know because <laughs> I have always thought data was fun. Well, it's it's honestly amazing because like moms are latching on hard and fast to your information and the the data and everything that you put out there because I think it makes us all feel a lot better, especially the way that you present it because what you do so well is you discuss nuances and um, how important that is when interpreting rules and that kind of thing and evidence or whatever it is. I want you kind of to describe in your own words, like what it is that you do. So first of all, there's, there's like, what do I do in my academic life? Which is like, I write papers, like with titles, like unobservable selection and coefficient stability theory and evidence. (laughs) Um, So that's fun. Uh, But what I do in my broader work, I would describe as translation. So what I really care about doing is saying, there is a body of evidence, of research, of science that should inform our decisions. And one very substantial barrier is that that information is not typically conveyed in a way that people can understand because it's jargony, it uh, requires a lot of background. And so what I am trying to do is simplify that and not simplify like, I read the paper and let me tell you what it is, but simplify it. Like, let me explain to you what you would get out of this paper. And let me explain to you with non-jargony words why you know, some evidence is better than other evidence. And I think that's that's really my goal is to help people be a little more data literate. So when they see some of these things like panic headlines, like if your kid watches any screens, they'll turn into a 
bottom dwelling slug, you can be like, well, that doesn't really sound right. Like maybe I should look into that a little more. So you do a, like a weekly Q and A on your Instagram, um, which is awesome, but it's also seriously remarkable because you are able to just pull statistics right out of your ass. I don't know how do you how or do you have an encyclopedic brain? Do you have to like go back and look these? But it seems like you're just you're firing out these answers. Like it's it's honestly incredible. <laughs> Um, there are many questions that people ask that I do know the answer to, um, because I have written about them, um, before. And sometimes I will look up to get like some number or something, uh, that I've forgotten. Um, and sometimes people ask something and I'll be like, I don't know the answer to this. And in some ways, like those are the most fun where it's like specific and it feels like, oh, there probably is an answer here, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what it is. Um, And so sometimes those, then I will like rabbit hole a little bit and try to like figure out the answer quickly. If there are like questions that come your way that actually have nothing to do with data, like I'm scared about something. Do you answer those? Yeah. I think that it is very important for these, I have found with these Q&As, they're like, I'm doing a lot of questions in a given day. It is good to have a balance. Like sometimes people want to see something funny. Like I just did a thing where, you know, there were a bunch of ones in the row and like one of them, I don't know, some of them were about data, but then I have this thing on my arm, you can see. And somebody was like, what's on your arm? (laughs) And so then I got to explain like, you know, I mean, that's not a data question, but you know, then you get like a little break from the data to find out that. I had a chafing problem with my running lights. Oh, I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. There's like, and this I've like wrapped it in this tourniquet oh. uh, situation. Like the olden days. Like the olden days. Yeah. It's fine. It's just, you know, if you're like really bad chafing when you exercise, yeah. it's like, it's horrible. They have body glide and stuff like I that. I know they have, I know <laughs> and I have it, but I just didn't realize that the, the things were going to chafe yeah. this particular arm anyway. My armpits chafe a lot. Mm, I chafe under my bra. That's like mm, my oh, biggest yeah, same issue. there too. Sometimes like, to the point of ble- bleeding. Bleeding. I know. My mine got so bad that I one time I showed my son and he was horrified and he made me this bracelet with like that like spells out bras are butts. And so <laughs> <laughs> now I can wear that to feel better. We can edit this part out. Yeah, kidding. I don't know. You know, people need to know this information. Leave it in. Um, no. Uh, I was going to say you're an avid runner. Yes. I am training for my first marathon. Exciting. Which marathon? CIM. When's that? Out in California in the first week of December. Okay. How's it going? It's a lot of running. Um, <laughs> you have to run a lot of miles. It's a, I think it's going okay. Like I, it's a lot of running. Is that kind of your therapy, running? It's like my self-care, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Like my place to set boundaries and be like, you know what? I'm not going to be home for this like four hours because I'm running a lot of miles. Yeah. How would your, um, how would you say your kids would describe you, um, from, you know, like an insider bird's eye view of (laughs) Emily Oster? I'm a hundred percent sure what they would say is that I freak out a lot, um, (laughs) which I think is an overstatement, but I mean, I think that they, you know, I I mean, I have, I think my kids like me, um, (laughs) I think they, they like me and I, you know, I'm sort of like the primary parent. And so, um, we spend a lot of time together. Um, but I think they would also say that I like can get like a little crazy. 
Yeah, I think my kids would say the exact same thing about me. Your your husband's also an economist. He is. He's also an economist. What um, kind of uh, data does he analyze? Uh, he his, a lot of his work is about the media. So his early work is about the media, and so trying to understand like bias in the media. And then at the moment, he works on um, a lot of super technical econometrics. I can barely read his papers. And uh, do you guys have similar parenting style? I think we have worked together to have a parenting style that jointly works well. I don't think our instincts are always similar, although I think they're they're not always exactly the same. I think they're generally similar. But um, but you know, we've been together since I was twenty. We had a long time of like working out how you do stuff together before we had to do this part together, which wasn't doesn't say it wasn't hard. Um, but I think it works. I think it works good. I think I feel the same way. My husband and I definitely were two different people, like really different people, but like similar foundations, right? So like at the end, it like you you know that your goals are the same. That's nice. And I think that, I mean, for me, I think that the, that's the part of, of sort of alignment with your partner that's the most important is to be able to say, are we trying to get to the same place? Yeah. Do we have the same like things that are important to us? Like there are ways in which we're very we're we're almost exactly the same, which we have exactly the same taste for like what would we do on the weekend, which is like spend a lot of time as a family and not do a lot of activities. And so that ends up like if we've had conflict about that, I think we'd fight about it all the time. As it is, it works out good. How do you manage that, by the way, with staying away from too many activities with two kids? We say no. Yeah. Do your kids play sports and no. They, so my daughter plays like runs cross country at school. Yep. Um, and my son does some kind of dance class or something. But we are like, I think in part I'm quite lucky because my kids haven't shown much affinity or taste for sports. Um, and my daughter's a pretty serious violinist, and so mm-hmm. we do a fair amount of violin. But it turns out that's actually much easier than sports because it's not mostly not a team activity. So like mostly mm-hmm. you do it in the house. Yeah. So. But I think it is. I mean, people ask me this a lot. Like, I probably are doing too many extracurriculars. Like, if they're interfering with your kid's sleep, or you know, most of the evidence does not suggest that you need to be investing in extracurriculars to the point that many American families are. But like, this is the way society is in a lot of places end up being organized. So to mm-hmm. say, like, I want to hold a day every weekend where there won't be anything planned, that's tough. It's to really implement. hard. Yeah, um, we. We are a sporty-ish family. Some of us are more sporty than others, but um, I saw a video of your husband like jumping up on boxes. Yeah, he's, he's he seemed very sporty. He's very athletic. Like he's yeah. like a he can like run and jump type guy. You know, yeah. um, from a statistical standpoint, I think it's like two percent of kids who play sports will ever play anything in college. So it's a colossal waste of time and money if that's sort of your goal. If that's your goal, right? And I think if you look, I mean, if you look at the data and you ask the the question of the data, you know, is there a benefit to extracurriculars? The answer is yes, there's like a socio-emotional benefit on average for many kids in having an activity like outside of school that they're good at, that they like, um, because it's a way to develop a sense of belonging. You know, if your kid loves the soccer team, and he loves his friends on the soccer team, and maybe they're different from his school friends, then, you know, when things are hard at school, or this is a place to feel like, you know, I'm good at something. I'm like, like, this is my, this is my thing. And that's really, really valuable for kids. 
So thinking about that as the benefit, mm-hmm. but you don't need to be on seven soccer teams or trying to get to the best soccer team or you know doing it all the time to get those benefits. And I think just reframing a little bit, why are we doing this, might help some people think about where are the limits that I want to that I want to be putting. And the other thing is I just cannot emphasize enough how important sleep is and how little we prioritize sleep for our kids, especially as they get older. And if there are things that are interfering with sleep, it is worth asking. Maybe it would be better to not do those things. Yeah. I mean, the idea of waking a child out of sleep to go to an activity like pains me. And also the idea that like, you know, if you said like, well, my kid's doing, you know, doing this activity from six to nine every night and they're getting home and then they have an hour of homework. And so their seventh graders going to bed at 11 o'clock at night. That's too late. They need more sleep than that. And that's just the reality. And there's no, like, you can't make more hours in the day. You have to choose. It's definitely something that I am really conscious of right now. I feel like we overcommitted this fall and it's a great lesson for me for next year. And this is like a weed out of activities year. Um, it's something that, like I said, I would not do. And I feel kind of like I went against my word on it and I, I'm going to change things for next year. A hundred percent. Like you have to prioritize one thing. Yeah. And I think, I think what you're saying about the, this like follow-up and like next year we'll do it differently. And this is something I talk about a lot in the family firm, the idea of like, rather than saying we made a mistake or I like I did a bad whatever, just to be like, okay, we were going to, we tried something and like next year we're going to follow up and we're going to use this information to make maybe a different choice. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, what are your thoughts on like discipline and uh, handling? I mean, I thought you, you did mention that your kids, would say that you like you freak out sometimes so relieved because I freak out pretty much every day. But then I think I I make up for it in other ways. But I guess let's go right into it. Like gentle, scripted parenting, how that plays out in real life and long-term outcomes, all of that jazz. So there's a couple of things that we know out of the data. So let's just like start with like the two things that I think we can agree are true in the data. So one is that There is a lot of evidence to suggest that hitting your kid as a form of punishment, whether it's spanking or some other form of corporal punishment, is not supported in the data, does not improve outcomes. A second thing to say is that any approach requires consistency. So the thing that that kind of classifies all all successful approaches to discipline is that they are consistent. So if you're beating your children, just keep beating them. No, no, no. (laughs) That was a distasteful joke. I'm sorry. I am sorry. And so, so consistency here means, you know, if you're going to have an approach that is involves, you know, counting and a timeout, which would be like a common, you know, one warning, two warning, three warning, you have a timeout, which is sort of something like triple P positive parenting or one, two, three magic, any of those kind of approaches, the the main thing they emphasize is just do the same thing every time. If you tell your kid it's one, two, three, timeout, every time it's one, two, three, timeout. And that all of those things are delivered in like a way that's not mad. It's not that you're yelling one, two, three. It's just like there's a system. At the end of the system, you get the consequence and the consequence is the same every time and kids understand what it is. That's what you want to be doing. 
right? So that piece of consistency is really important. Within that, there's a lot of different ways to be consistent. I think part of what happens is some of those systems are easier to do than others. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these systems that rely on some kind of warning and then whether you call it a timeout or a break or that those systems are successful uh, at changing family dynamics and that parents report being happier afterwards and kids are better behaved, whatever. There's no strong evidence that gentle parenting is better or less good. For some people, this is really appealing. I think the place that it can run into issues is that it's hard to implement. Sometimes you just need to leave the house with your shoes on. And <laughs> and it can, I think people sort of run into the, the question of like, how do I implement consistently this system, but also sometimes leave the house with my shoes on? And it's not that you can't. I just think it requires a fair amount of work to like figure out how you're going to make that happen. I don't know. Is that, I mean, is that? No, I think that's a great answer. Like there are ways, but then I didn't use one, two. I think one, two, three magic is you get to time out after three yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I used one, two, three magic in a different way where I was like, um, I'm going to count to three and you can go put your shoes on or I'm going to put them on for mm -hmm. you. Yeah, And that worked well because I was like, I'm not going to use a timeout because I can't follow yeah. through on a timeout with all of this. Like, we have to leave. I can't put you in timeout type thing. Um, so I just made it about like, this is, I'll give you to the count of three and you can do it or I'll do it for you pretty much in all scenarios. Like, if you don't walk over here, I will come get you and physically carry you over here type thing. Yeah. And just following through with it all the time. And it really worked. Like, they chose their their own autonomous like way of doing things rather than me doing it for them, which was great in more than one way. Um, but now there are times where my kids are eight and 10 years old and they're not, I'm not going to put their fucking shoes on for them anymore if they don't do it on the count of three, you know? So that's no longer a legitimate threat. So raising my voice actually works. Like that's what tends to get the response that makes them actually listen and do it almost daily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, I mean, I think in some ways these things get much harder. These kind of questions about discipline get much harder as our kids get older, because exactly what you described, like you basically came up with what is a modified version of many of these things where the end consequence was not a timeout, but was this other thing. And like, there are so many ways to implement that when your kids are little. As we think about bigger kids, it, I mean, as you say, like you can't any kind of I'm going to pick you up and pull it, move you over here. Well, like, no, now you're my daughter's almost as tall as I am. Like I'm picking her up and moving and moving her <laughs> over. And so there's it's kind of like I, I think there are still versions of this that maybe don't involve yelling, although uh, although it's I mean, it's just it's just hard. Yeah. And it's like. Hard the more action you have going on in a situation makes it the less realistic where you're able to like implement a system that works every time. I think. I will say the, the advantage of older kids is that they can understand more distant punishments. So with a little kid, the, the sort of, I'm going to do this thing as a consequence immediately is much better than like you lose 10 minutes of television, like at a distant point. But for older kids, there's there are sort of versions of this 
that one can experiment with that involve consequences, you know, later that day in a week, whatever it is. Um, of course, you have to be willing to follow through on those consequences too. Yeah, I find myself in a place where like I don't really have the energy for actual punishment. Like I just want to be on like an eye to eye level with you, kid, mm-hmm. where you're like, I'm asking you to do something. It's for a reason and I expect you to listen to me, you know, like, so if that sometimes requires like a, a sit down conversation every now and again to remind them that they need to fucking listen. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's good. And then they're yeah. old enough to understand they need to, especially 10. Yeah. You were talking about daycare recently yeah. on your page and just about there are different outcomes if there are different outcomes of children who go to daycare versus are with a parent at the inside the home. So I'll say sort of two things. So first daycare gets this, this was in part in response to these like very scary, like TikTok things where somebody was like, when you drop your infinite daycare, they think you died. Like, first of all, how would you even know if that were true? But like, okay, putting that aside, (laughs) Um, when you look at the data on daycare, there are maybe some small effect, positive cognitive effects, maybe some small behavioral effects. Everything is small. And so ultimately that decision should really rest on like what works for your family and what is the care situation that like works for you, works for your kids, works for your budget, works for your schedule. And not because like daycare is the perfect solution for every person or not the perfect solution for every person. And I'll give you another example in that context that I've been thinking about a lot. So somebody wrote in to me, and said, you know, I drop my kid off at daycare and she cries every day. Then the letter went on to say basically, and it takes me, the parent, an hour to stop crying and get over this. And like, I, everyone tells me daycare is important for my kid, but like all I do all day is like think about how terrible this is and cry about it. And then when I pick her up, I'm sad. And like, basically this is ruining my life. And I just wrote back, I was like, you know, a lot of kids try to drop off to daycare. That doesn't mean that daycare is a problem. There's no, that's like sort of totally developmentally normal. But look at your email. Like you are crying every day, dropping your kid off. This isn't working for you. And like, it doesn't matter. Like daycare could be amazing for your kid's cognitive development. It's ruining your life. Like this isn't for you. And that's a case where it really, I think the the preferences of this person, the feelings that she was having are so much more important than anything that would show up in the daycare about, you know, is your kid getting a little more letters or colors or whatever? And I think just recognizing those pieces, it's so important for decision-making. Yeah. I, I just, I, I love that about you. I love that about your content. And I think it's all just super helpful in interpreting the facts and then being very realistic about life. You have to do what works for you. And, you know, maybe like the exact science or data isn't representative of something that works for your life. Would you say that that's like your mantra? Absolutely. Sometimes, and and I think, yes, I completely agree. And I think people often be like, you know, what's one thing that, you know, the data says you must do? And it's like, the data is not bossy. Like when you are thinking about this, data is an input to which you add your preferences and your constraints. And the data is almost never going to be like, this is the only good choice and only a loser would do something else. It's almost always going to be like, there are benefits, there are, you know, there are costs and benefits to different approaches and you need to figure out what works for you. Um, I think if I had to like have a sentence 
maybe it's like there's no right way to do it. There's only what's right for you. That's actually the answer that I give every time people ask me that question too. It's the exact same answer and I have no fucking credibility. So (laughs) I disagree. I listen and I think that you have a lot of credibility. (laughs) I really appreciate that. Um, Before I let you go, what's your uh, favorite snack? Is this the hardest question so far? Oh my God, this is the hardest question. I love <laughs> snacks. So I have these like, I eat so many snacks. There are these like blender muffins with like Ooh. oats and like, it's like banana and oats. I don't know. This like- You make the muffin. Yeah, you make yeah. the muffin, but they're really easy because you just put all the stuff in a blender and also yeah. my family doesn't like them. So that's a win because then no one else eats them. They're your snack. They're mine. Yeah. They're my snack. Is there a protein element to them or are they just a straight up like a – No, no. It's like Greek yogurt and some eggs. So it's like – Nice. Sort of like a a baked oatmeal in a muffin form. Did you find this um, recipe on social media? Um, So there's a woman who I both follow and work with named Megan Featherston who is like a – Yeah, like a endurance sports dietitian person and this is her recipe. Awesome. I'll have to check her out. Oh, she's great. She's like totally into how you should like eat a lot of carbohydrates and she's great for like sports fueling. Awesome. Um, Well, everyone needs to come visit you on Instagram. Um, Prof Emily Aster. Prof Emily Aster, because you are a professor at Brown University. I am. Yeah. Ivy League school. Here I am in my office. And you're, you're, uh, podcast is parent data parent data so the newsletter is called parent data the website's called parentdata.org podcast called parent data i love how just like simple it is it's like here you go here's your fucking parent data that's it i really appreciate you coming today thank you and for having i me. hope we can do something in the future maybe some kind of a collaboration between science and humor that would be amazing i'll talk to you soon talk to you soon Thanks so much for being here. For more information on today's episode, visit my show notes. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a review. Now get yourself a snack.